Thank you for joining us here on ABM Bav's podcast series, Talking on Tap. I'm your host, Elaine McCrimmon, Global Head of Reputation and External Engagement. And in this episode, we'll be hearing from our experts about how beer is a driving force for the economic recovery. We'll be talking with David Almeida, our Chief Strategy and Technology Officer, about how we're expanding the beer category and the shifts that we've seen during the pandemic. We'll speak to Zahed Torres-Raman, the founder and chief executive officer for Business Fights Poverty, about how government, business and civil society can support small business, especially the women-owned businesses around the world that are a driving force for many economies. And finally, we'll be joined by Laura Brady, our global head of diversity and inclusion, and she'll share how we can build back better in a more inclusive and diverse way. Welcome to ABM Bav's Talking on Tap. I'm very pleased to introduce David Almeida, our Chief Strategy and Technology Officer. David, it's great to have you on the show. Hey, Elaine, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Let's start with so many brands and partners around the world. How are we helping to grow the beer category? That's a great question, Elaine, and it's really important. I think whenever we talk about growth, it's always important to start with our yeah. purpose, right? So our purpose as a company is to bring people together for a better world. And during COVID, I think that purpose was more uh, yeah. relevant than ever. You know, people were alone, isolated with their families, right? And during the pandemic, they were able to convene over a beer and they're longing to get together again. So I think just performing yeah. our purpose throughout the pandemic was, uh, was really important and helped uh, grow and was crucial for people. As we look forward and think about growth, I tend to try to simplify our business and look at two ways that we can really drive growth. One of them is having the best possible portfolio. That's about having the right brands, the right beers that are really going to drive growth. And if you think about our strategy in terms of what we're doing, one of the ways we're doing that is through the area of premiumization, right? So as consumers become more affluent around the world, as they try to trade up, they're looking for unique experiences. And we have a wonderful, beautiful portfolio to deliver to them to help them achieve what they want, right? So when you think about the brands we have, the Coronas, the Stellas, the Craft Brands, the Goose Islands, so providing those unique and great beers to our consumers, a way to grow the beer category via per capita consumption and premiumization via the quality of our portfolio. A second piece is when we talk about our core brands, right? So as we think about core brands, it's the world is made up of poor places, rich places. But if we can provide great beers at affordable prices to our consumers, that means that we can allow them to trade up, for example, from markets in Africa where they were drinking kind of cheap alcohol or kind of homemade alcohol to trade up into the beer category. So if we make beer affordable enough for them, we can actually expand the beer category and have them trade up and have a better experience with our products. And then finally, as we think about growing beer, we think about new spaces, yeah. new territories, new occasions. And when we look at us versus other beverages, right, between, you know, if you compare against soft drinks compared with hard liquor, there are occasions out there that we can really fight for. So, you know, for those that are in the United States and have seen the emergence of the seltzer category, it's a beautiful opportunity for us. Low carbs, low calorie, very drinkable, you know, consumed out of a can. So it fits with our manufacturing capabilities and it's hit a sweet spot with our consumers and it goes for segments that are adjacent to ours. So it's incremental volume tower. So having the right portfolio is one way that I think we're doing a great job in terms of growing our business. And the second piece that I think has been critical and is going to be critical more and more in the future is how we're transforming our business enabled by technology. So this is all about how we really strengthen our ecosystem from the 6 million mom and pop customers around the world. And quite frankly, only we service. How do we help make their business stronger? 
so they can survive and carry our brands and really help our business move forward. How can we, as our consumers, move online, right? And start shopping more online. How can we meet them there, right? And provide our beers at the most convenient way possible for them to do that. And then finally, how do we know our consumer better and have a great understanding of our consumer so that when we speak to them and we have a communication with them, do we do it in a way that's adding value to them? It's not disrupting, not bothering them, not interrupting them, but it's really a real conversation that's via our e-commerce platforms, via our social media platforms, having messages that resonate better with our consumers, are more relevant to them, to have a more rich dialogue. So really maximizing the effects of our sales and marketing investments to really drive our business. So on one end, portfolio, on the other end, technology, and it's about using those things to drive drive our business Yeah, so really sticking with those 6 million retailers that you talked about servicing, can you tell us about the impact to that trade, particularly the traditional mom and pop stores? What's hit them particularly hard during this time? Great question, Lane. And if you think about it, these customers, the 6 million customers, they're the bread and butter of our business. We visit them on a weekly basis. And a lot of other consumer goods companies out there, more of their business is in what you call the modern trade, supermarkets, grocery stores. But we, because of the kind of place where our beers are purchased and consumed, we have a big footprint of customers that our ecosystem that are the smaller accounts, the smaller pubs, the smaller restaurants, the bodegas, the convenience stores, right? We're very present in a very kind of traditional trade. And even before COVID, this traditional trade was under pressure, yeah. right? So that a lot of pressures were impacting them. So you have the growth of the modern trade. As you think about if you're a small bodega, right? If you're a small convenience store and you're competing against the Walmart, competing against a big chain, it's very difficult. You don't have access to technology. You don't have access to capital. How are you going to go out and compete with a global behemoth to survive? And because we're so important in these accounts, our success is tied to theirs. So if they don't succeed, we fail as well, right? So it's, a, it's an ecosystem. It's really a, a symbiotic relationship between us and them. So coming into COVID, they're already struggling. And then COVID hit and the pain became even more severe because, you know, consumers were locked down in their homes. They weren't able to go. A lot of these trips that we're talking about are convenience trips, right? Where people go to a a bodega around the corner and if they're locked at home, they weren't performing those trips, right? So these, uh, these accounts came under a lot of pressure, financial pressure. So, you know, how do you keep a business afloat if you have to close your doors for a few weeks, a few months, or even more than that? So they were facing a lot of pressure. Well, the good news is in us, they have an ally that has been thinking thoroughly about everything we can do to help them. And the the good news is over the past few years, we've really gone out and we've really mapped the digital world and tried to understand from the digital leaders how they do their business and how they grow. And one of the key learnings we found is that the digital leaders, whenever they create a, a great business, it all starts with identifying a pain point. So thinking about their customer, thinking about their consumer, and saying, what is the pain point that I can solve via technology to really advance their business? And nobody knows more about our customers than we do. But sometimes we probably just forgot or didn't pay enough attention. But even before the pandemic, we started really spending time thinking about our customers, doing ethnographic research, and really understanding the pain points they have. What are the problems they have? So if you go to a lot of our markets in Latin America and Africa, for example, a lot of our customers aren't financially included. They don't have bank Mm -hmm. accounts. They don't have swipe machines to accept credit cards. They've never been offered credit. But if they have, it's at extortionary yeah. prices, right? So a huge interest rate. So the financial acumen is a big piece. Second piece is, you know, these people are busy. During their day, they're opening their store, they're family-owned businesses, they're working from morning till night, late at night many times, right? And they don't have time to correctly manage their business. So one of the things they, they do today is they have to entertain 15, 20 sales reps, right? From different categories they're trying to sell to them. So those are two big pain points to identify is, you know, one, financial inclusion, Second is how can we provide them convenience 
so they can give them back time to really manage their business. And that's informing some of the choices that we're adopting and some of the products we're creating to really help those businesses. So let me start talking first about convenience and about how we're helping our customers. So around two or three years ago, we created a product called Peace. Okay, and then when it was originally created, it didn't have that name. But this is basically an app that has really empowered us to elevate our relationship with our customers. So in the past, the way we used to sell to our customers would be, we'd have a sales rep that would visit you know, 30, 40 accounts a day, and he'd spend five minutes in each account. And that was a beautiful model for us. We thought it was a huge competitive advantage, and it was for so long. But in a world where people are so used now to getting everything they need over the internet, you know, that model was basically disrupted. So we said, how can we flip that model on its head? So instead of having the sales rep go in and spending a lot of time taking an order from an account, how can we provide an app to this account so the owner of the account can order as they wish, 24-7, at their own time, with absolute convenience? And what we found, instead of interacting for seven minutes with our sales rep, they're now interacting with our company for 30 or 40 minutes because they have a wonderful app that's giving them the opportunity to navigate our products, learn new things, and really grow their business and help them. And on top of that, we've empowered this app with AI and data to make sure that they can have the right products they need to really succeed. And because we have all of this on one app, now we can sell more things. So instead of having to deal with 17 or you know 15 to 20 other vendors, we can provide everything they need in a one-stop shop. So right there, we've solved some key pain points they have, helped them elevate their business. On the financial side, we created something called a group called ZTech, which has been a huge success as well which is basically focused on empowering small and medium businesses by providing them the financial tools they need. So very basic. So something as simple as a swipe machine that they can accept credit cards and debit cards from their clients. We know that when they do that, they increase their sales by 30, 40%, which is a huge benefit for them. And we can help them minimize those swipe fees. Second thing is we can provide them a digital account. So a lot of these small businesses don't have accounts. So we create a digital wallet for them where they can make payments. They don't have to go to the post office to wire up a check to someone. They can pay their electric bill via their digital wallet. And then we also provide them credit. So we've used via our own funds and third-party companies, fintech companies are out there. We've made huge loans available to our customers where given the data we know about them, we can offer them loans at affordable rates. And in some cases, give them access to customers who never had access to credit before, helping them grow their business. So that solidifies their ecosystem. And it really is a win-win because given how important we are for them and given how important they are for us, when we make them stronger, we are stronger, right? And that's been great to really help drive that relationship with those small customers. And those are some of the things we're doing to really drive that part of the business. Yeah, especially right now where it's not just about allowing these businesses to survive, but actually taking that extra step to really thrive into the future. Can you tell us a little bit more about the role that beer can play in the recovery? Sure. So beer is a massive consumer goods category. And if you look at our business, right, the different channels we have between the off-premise and the on-premise, during COVID, basically what stayed open was the large off-premise. The on-premise, the bars were closed. Yeah. And a lot of our small kind of bodegas, I said, were closed for a while under a lot of pressure. So we are doing a lot to help our channels reopen. So throughout the pandemic, one of the things we were always focused on is how can we be there to support our customers so that they don't go under, Yeah, And that when they come back, we can provide them the help they need to really open up in a seamless way, right? So we did a lot of initiatives during the pandemic, Save the Pub initiatives, brand support. So our Save the Pub initiatives were really cool where we said, we went out to our consumers and we said, please donate to your account, to your local pub. It's closed now, but we're going to match your investment. So if you decide to donate to our Save the Pub initiative, we will match your donation to the Save the Pub initiative and we'll revert those funds to those accounts, right? So they'll stay open. 
And when they come back, you can use your contribution as a credit to go buy it at account yeah. when they come back. So it really was like a beautiful product that kind of channeled funds towards our account to give our customers that kind of lifeline yes. during the pandemic and give them that hope that they could open back. And by the way, that they were so necessary for their consumers that their consumers were willing to contribute and to buy vouchers yeah. to go consume in the accounts when they came back. So I think it was a beautiful example of the strength of the ecosystem. Consumers want the accounts. The accounts need to stay open, right, to drive yeah. business. And we were there to provide them a lifeline, kind of like a bridge to help them survive during that period. But then we did all kinds of things. So, you know, as accounts were reopening, for example, as we were coming back from lockdowns, we were helping them with the right operating procedures. How is it that they could operate in a COVID environment with the right masks, with hand sanitizers, with all the coaching they needed to keep their accounts and their consumers safe? So we did a lot of learning, a lot of education to help our customers open. We provided financing. We provided brand support. And we did whatever we could to really help them bridge that period. And the results have been, you know, for me, really inspiring. It's almost emotional when you look at the gains we've made in terms of reputation. Our customers noticed everything we did to keep them thriving during the pandemic. And they're grateful for us, right? They're grateful for what we did. And we're grateful for the partnership and uh, for everything that they do for us. So I think, again, a good example of win-win where we were able to lend a hand when it was most needed not only in terms of financial resources, but also engagement with consumers, with education and teaching our customers, you know, how to stay open the right way. And the the results have been great. Business coming back, less businesses went bankrupt. Their bond with us is deeper than it was prior to the crisis. And now, as we see, not everywhere, but most markets, as consumers are coming back, as lockdowns are falling down, you know, we see that these businesses, these family-owned businesses are in a good position to thrive as a consumer comes back, you know? Yeah. And another important element there, particularly for the traditional trade, is the high percentage of women who are running these businesses in hospitality, which is clearly another key element of an inclusive growth in recovery because women have been particularly disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. So it's great. The initiatives that you're talking about are really helping to steer those and navigate those businesses to really thrive in the long run. For sure, Elaine. And that's a great point. You know, when you do market visits anywhere around the world, right? In the United States, you go visit the local convenience store, you go to Peru, Brazil, you go to Africa, and you visit a lot of these family accounts. Very often, more than not, it's the woman of the household who is really managing the account, keeping it there and driving it. So we have specific programs like our Tiendera program. It's in a lot of Latin America, which is about providing that mother of the family, the education she needs, the tools she needs to really uh, thrive and be a better business person. It's exciting. You know, for example, I recall a couple market visits. I was in Mexico, uh, really following up on the launch of CI. This was before COVID, our digital wallet in Mexico. And to see kind of like an old age woman interacting with an app on her cell phone, you know, getting access to financial inclusion. It's just exciting and all emotional to see the impact you can have on a person like that. You know, as many people probably would have guessed, it would be very hard to include her in the digital world, much less the financial, uh, the fintech space, right? And to see her interacting with that app was a a really uh, rewarding moment, you know? Yeah, I remember the same even before when we were allowed to travel. Yeah, I was remembered seeing one of our initiatives in Colombia and the extent to which these female were leaders in the community and provided credit lines for others who were less fortunate than themselves. And yeah, it's amazing. So maybe if you can tell us a little bit more about some of the technology innovations that we're seeing at the moment. It's it's funny you ask because on on technology, I'd say that uh, a few years ago, we probably had a naive vision of the world. And that naive vision of the world was that we were lucky enough not to be a tech company. 
And that naive vision of the world that came from a good space, actually, it came from a space that we've been around since 1366, and we've done a ton of innovation. If you think about product innovation, the kind of the yeah. way we brew beers, the way we package our beers, we've always been on the forefront. But as you think more broadly about innovation, you think about technology, right? The, the disruption happening in technology, we'd say we're isolated from that. We're insulated. You know, we like not to be a technology company because, you know, technology companies can go out of business. It's very volatile. Someone can come with a better mousetrap and you can really disrupt the technology company. Whereas we've been around since 1366. We have these enduring brands, right? So we said we're lucky. But the reality is the growth and the development of technology over the past few years has really accelerated at such a pace that whoever is not thinking about how they update their business, how they upgrade their business, leveraging technology is going to basically die. It's going to become irrelevant because the world's moving very fast. If you just think about some of the trends we've had in terms of e-commerce, think about it. 20 years ago, nobody was really shopping e-commerce. You think about cloud computing, the fact that you no longer have to have big servers in your offices to keep the computers running. You can operate that in the cloud. If you think about fintech, as I said, you know, yeah. the way to access credits, the way to make payments. So things are changing so quickly that if companies aren't thinking about how to elevate those technologies, how to use them, they're going to become irrelevant very, very quickly. So in that sense, we continue to have the focus on beer innovation. So we have our GTEC centers yeah. that are concocting and developing the best tasting beers in the world, the most high quality products in the world. We have our groups thinking about our packaging, but more and more of our time now is thinking about innovation in the digital space and yeah. thinking about how can we use our assets and technology to provide solutions for our consumers and our customers, right? So yeah. that's where things like the Bees app comes from. That's where things like Z Delivery, right? So Z Delivery is a great example of a, a revolution, if you think, in terms of the way people consume beer. So consumers, again, told us they had a pain point. You know, more often than not, a few times during the week, they have some beer occasions where for whatever reason, they didn't have beer cold in the fridge when they needed it. Yeah. So our teams created a platform, an international career platform called Z Delivery. Uh, and it's been around for four or five years. It started a very small venture, an idea, but now it's growing very, very fast, which was all about cold beer. So the pain point, the proposition of this platform was cold beer delivered to your doorstep in 30 minutes at supermarket prices. And this was a business that we struggled at first. It was managed small, but it started getting traction, started getting traction. And then when COVID hit, all of a sudden we're like, wow, we have something big in our hands. Yeah. Because then consumers really needed the convenience. And then we were there. So the size of the platform multiplied by 20 during COVID. And the good news is that once consumers get trained to do something, they create habits, they habitualize something. So they're ordering online. They're going to continue to order online. So we're seeing continued growth of the platform after COVID and as markets come back from COVID. So this is not a technology innovation per se in terms of the way we used to think about it, in terms of product or in terms of packaging. Yeah, It's a process innovation. It's about developing a product, which is, again, addressing a pain point. Hold beer, 30 minutes, supermarket prices at your doorstep. And that's the kind of innovation that's making an impact. So right now, this business is growing tremendously. It's becoming one of the largest customers we have in Brazil, right, with significant parts of our business. And it's great because we're leveraging our ecosystem. So again, going back to those accounts we were talking about earlier, yeah, the mom and pop accounts, right? We use them, we leverage them to deliver the beer to the doorstep in yeah. 30 minutes, right? Because we're there and we have a relationship with them, we can count on them to deliver that beer to, to the household in 30 minutes. So it's a great innovation, which shows again, the strength of our ecosystem. And again, it's focused on identifying a pain point with the consumer and then using our ecosystem, the tools at our disposal to really uh, address it in a way that creates value for us and for our consumers and for our customers. So can you tell us then a little bit more about some of the areas the team are looking at, say blockchain, artificial intelligence, robotics? Can you tell yeah. us a little bit more about some of the projects? One of the areas that I've been spending a disproportionate amount of my time on that I'm super excited about and by the way, we're looking at blockchain, we're looking at robotics, right? But the one that I've really been spending a lot of my time on is analytics. 
Okay. And how we use analytics models, machine learning, AI to really enhance our business. So when I think about from a technology perspective, what we're trying to do, okay, what we're trying to do from a technology perspective is we want to be the platform that connects our ecosystem from our smallest consumer to our last customer, right? We want to be the platform connecting our ecosystem. We want to do it with our own digital platforms, like the Bees app I talked about, like the DTC app I talked about. But then most importantly is we want to leverage data and AI, artificial intelligence, to create value for consumers, right? And that's where I think the real value creation is because there are possibilities out there that the human eye cannot visualize, where our brains don't have the power to go do that. So we're thinking about what are the right domains, where are the spaces, what are the right use cases where we can really apply data and analytics to create value, okay? so. You talk about bees, right? So when that customer, the B2B app, when that customer goes on the app, we can tell them what are the products that are most likely going to thrive in that account, right? So you've ordered this, this, this. Customers around you have ordered these other products also do very, very well. Order this, because if you do this, it's going to be an incremental sale. It's going to add to your product. It's going to do great. When we look at the ads that we're going to put in front of our consumers on our digital channels, making sure they see the right ads that are personalized, that are engaging for them. Behind all of that, our models that tell us, you know, given the data we have with teams that are thinking about that, they really help us make those decisions, right? How do we manage our promotions? How do we manage our assortment? How do we manage our advertising? How do we manage our business in a way that optimizes value? And we're creating a lot of great capabilities with our teams to go do that. So originally, one of the things we created was we created a, a center of excellence called the GAC. So it's our growth analytics center in India. So we went to Bangalore, we hired 40, 50 data scientists, and we started giving them one or two or three different products, right? So run forecasting for us, run this product for us. And that was very good to get us started. So we got a, a, yeah. a good start. But we're finding now it's critical that you embed analytics and AI closer to the business. So now we're moving from just having one center of excellence to really creating agile squads. So groups of people. So you'll go into a business and alongside a commercial executive, right? Someone who runs sales, someone who runs marketing, you can have someone who owns a product, which is an algorithm, a tool that we're building, someone who's a data engineer, someone who's a data scientist, and they're going to work together to create a winning product and say, this product is going to help us optimize the logistics of our second tier delivery fleet. And they're going to use data and algorithm and analytics to really create value for the company. So it's really exciting. It's about changing the way we attack problems. Yeah. It's about changing how we structure our teams, right? It used to be very functional, very siloed with center of excellence to really having multifunctional teams with people that understand data, the analytics side, data scientists, product managers, how to deliver the insights, right? Yeah. In a way that's constructive for the front line. So it's not enough that I tell the sales rep or the customer that this is the best thing that you can sell. We have to, I have to explain why to him and I have to do it in a way that convinces him that it's good for his business. So doing that whole change management piece, right? So it's beyond just analytics and AI. Yeah. It's a whole approach to how to change your business, leveraging data and AI, right? From, you know, having the right people organized the right way in terms of agile squads, and then making sure that we're able to deliver those insights to the front line in a way that they can understand, that they can act on to really create value for the company. Yeah, and certainly those agile squads were put into action during the crisis and moved at pace to get that transformation and being able to hit the, sure. those increases in terms of uptake of the apps. Is there, when you think 10 to 15 years, what do you think are going to be the greatest technological developments for us? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, we've spent time with some futurologists and I'd prefer like, to rephrase that question. I think more broadly than which technological developments are going to be the future, I like to talk about capabilities that I think are critical. And I think a lot of us grew up in beer coming from markets that are emerging markets. Yeah. We call maturity one, you know, like Latin America's, Africa's. And in that stage, 
what's critical for you to grow your business. It's all about availability, having the beer made available at the right yeah. price. So it's all about solutions, connecting route to market, connecting pricing algorithms to make sure you can make it there, get the beer there and get it affordable. Okay, so that's a big piece. And I think broadly, that's still very important, but it, as markets become more mature, it's less important than it was in the past. It was more of a competitive advantage in the past than it is today, even because e-commerce is developing. So people are having yeah. alternative ways to get products. What's critical for success today, the capabilities that are critical for success today are all around portfolio building and the right brands. So having great consumer empathy, having great innovation capabilities, yeah. developing the right products like Seltzer. That's a brand innovation, a portfolio innovation, yeah. understanding consumers and really getting that pain point and really winning with that. So that's where I think victory is being defined today is being defined with consumer capabilities, the portfolio to really win. In the future, I think a lot of the capabilities that are going to define success are connected to data, analytics, algorithms, the people that are better able to leverage the data to, in a very fast way, right, respond in a very micro-targeted way, personalized with their consumers and their customers, provide great personalized experiences. So those yeah. are the kind of the capabilities I think that are going to really define the future are there. So it used to be about engineers developing great route-to-market models, pricing models. Yeah. Now it's about brilliant marketeers developing the right portfolio, positioning it, and communicating in the best way possible. And I really believe the future is going to be about people that really know data algorithms uh, uh, so they can really personalize experiences for their customers, consumers, and solve very, very specific pain points that customer, consumer needs. So that's how I see a little bit of the continuum in terms of capability. So we're always going to need those capabilities. Yeah. What I'm talking about here are the degrees yeah. in which we're going to need them and how critical they are to our success. Yeah. So David, you lead such an exciting area. You've just told us that you've been talking to futurologists. I'm going to have to get you back on the show. You can tell us a lot more about some of your innovations and the work we're doing even in Silicon Valley. But one final question for you. What's your leadership lesson for the past 12 months in dealing with the crisis? What would you like to share with our listeners in terms of how you've navigated? When I look back, Elaine, and you think about the past, I was thinking about this today, the past 14 months, I think just the resilience of the human being is amazing, right? Yeah. If you, if you think about it, I mean, we've been through a lot of pain. Yeah. And if, if you just, we all transport ourselves back, you know, 14 months back to like March of uh, 2020. Yeah. You know, the things that were going on in people's minds in terms of, you know, uh, physical fear, mental fear economic fear, right? Fear for the future, you know, and it was a really dark space. You know, our generation hasn't been through something like that. And it was, it was tough. But if you fast forward now 14 months and you think about the way that society has been resilient, you know, in terms of addressing for the most part, uh, the pandemic, I think that the government's reacted very quickly in terms of stimulus to keep business floating, right? And doing well. I think we as a company, I'm really proud. I think, you know, in yeah. many ways, 2020 was the worst year in our history. If you just look from a pure financial performance perspective, but from uh, business results and what we did and the way we organized during the pandemic, the way we responded, the way our team stepped up yeah. was for me the best year, right? It could have been a lot, lot worse in terms of where we could have been, right? But our teams reacted quickly with a sense of urgency, with an ownership mentality. We kept the business running and we actually outperformed a lot of our peers, right? We delivered very, very good results during the pandemic. So I think my message is one of resilience. Yeah, We all learned a lot during the pandemic. We came out of it. Unfortunately, you know, there's human suffering, but we all learn a lot. And I think many of us you know, are going to come out stronger because of what we went through during the pandemic and we're going to learn from it. Thank you. That's certainly something that we could take away is the resilience, resilience of the teams and really being able to step up and deliver. David, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you for the questions. Enjoy talking.
Turning to an external guest now, it is with great pleasure that I introduce you to Zahid Torres Rahman. He is the Chief Executive Officer and founder of Business Fights Poverty. It's so great that you've been able to join us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you tell us about your organization, Business Fights Poverty? It's such a unique organization and I know our listeners will want to learn more. Well, thank you, Elaine. You know, if you look around the world today and the the scale and the complexity and the urgency of the challenges that we're facing, it's clear that we cannot deal with these alone. You know, we have to collaborate across divides, across silos, across sectors. And thinking about how we do that as fast and as efficiently as possible really is what drives Business Fights Poverty. It's been our mission for about 15 or so years. We're a global community of about 30,000 people and organizations who are passionate about building an equitable and resilient future. And what we do at Business Fights Poverty is try and drive these rapid collaborations with the best people we can find within our community and beyond to really move the needle on some really pressing social challenges. And I'm really delighted to say that right from the beginning, AB InBev has been a partner, looking at issues such as supporting small businesses through to empowering women. And then when COVID hit in, what is it, March 2020, AB InBev was one of the very first companies to step forward and partner with us on the response. Uh, And then now with India, again, one of the first companies to step up and think about what we can do together to support those who are impacted. Yes, and it's been an absolute pleasure to work with you, given our local footprint and the fact that we're on the ground. It's even more important for us to have partners like you to be able to collaborate and have that kind of disruption and be able to work together. So it's broader than the title, you know, goes way beyond poverty alleviation. Absolutely. No, I think at its essence, what we're trying to understand is how we as business can support the most vulnerable, in particular in the context of their lives, their livelihoods, and their access to learning. And in particular, how we can do that faster and at a bigger scale by working together. So really, that covers any issue. And you know, it might be tackling gender-based violence. It might be supporting smallholder farmers. But it's a whole range of issues around social. And I'm sure as we'll come on to speak about in a while, increasingly, we need to be thinking about the intersection between social and climate as well. So as an organization that collaborates with a wide-ranging set of stakeholders, how did you pivot during the course of the pandemic in order to be able to still bring people together? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's been such a significant moment in all of our lives, isn't it? And I think for us, when we heard COVID-19 being declared a pandemic, I think the next day we decided to pivot the entire organization to focus on thinking about how we could use our network and all that collective intelligence to help companies make decisions immediately to help those most impacted. So we did that pretty quickly with Jane Nelson, who's the director of the Corporate Responsibility Initiative at Harvard Kennedy School, and a number of corporates, including AB InBev, to really think about how we could help people both respond immediately, but also to hopefully eventually recover. And as we're switching to now, how we can maybe rebuild better and really tapping into the respective competencies and resources and networks that we can all bring to these issues. I think the other thing for us, when I sort of reflect on the year, has been around, in a sense, the process that we've been through. We already were a dispersed organization. We already used online a lot. 
But what we found is by really leaning into this idea of bringing people from around the world through online technologies together, actually we could bring so many more voices to the table, including voices of those much more proximate to the issues that we're trying to deal with. So actually this idea of using a new way of collaborating rapidly has been very exciting, hopefully something that we can continue long after the pandemic is a distant memory. So you think the hybrid events are the way of the future? I think so. I mean, you know, you you look at our events, and I know you've been to quite a lot of events we've done over many years. We've always been quite good on gender diversity, I think, but we've been pretty poor on other aspects of diversity, you know, with the honest self-reflection. Whereas now in the last year, if you look at our online events, actually we're doing so much better in terms of bringing in a diversity of voices to these issues. And I think that's so important. And I think in order to keep that going, we're going to have to go for more of a hybrid model than relying on people flying to New York or London or wherever it might be. We certainly see the same on our side, that it frees up possibilities to do way more than, say, one conference. So I think that that hybrid model is here to stay. So you talked in your introduction a lot around the improving lives and livelihoods. Have you seen a lot more interest in the mission of Business Fights Poverty during this time? Yeah, I think so. On one level, I think the pandemic has taught us a couple of really important things. One is just how interconnected we are as people all over the world, really looking at what we can achieve when we work together. I mean, it's been quite amazing to see the power of the human spirit, but also the power of what we can do when we really put our mind to something that's urgent, that's seen as a shared challenge, and that we all come to bringing whatever we can bring to that issue. And I think that sense of moving fast to solve something together has been, I think, really important. And certainly for our community, we've been really thinking about how do we tap into almost this social brain that we've got access to, to unlock some of these really tricky issues. But I think there's a sort of deeper trend there as well, which has been interesting. One is a greater appreciation of the role of business, particularly through core business to a lot of these issues. Clearly, government has to lead on all of these things, but business has an important role to play. And I think government has realized that, civil society has realized that, but also business has realized that. There's one really interesting um, study, the Edelman Trust Barometer, which some of your listeners might be aware of, which this year showed that business has a 61% trust score. In fact, the only that is trusted, in fact, even compared to government and civil society and media, But also in the survey, they found that 86% of people felt that business should stand up on issues that matter to society. So I think in this sort of context of expectation on business to make a difference, that certainly meant organizations like ours have a role to play, I think, in that conversation. I think alongside that, we recognize the issues we're dealing with are so much more complex and systemic that you can't deal with those sorts of things on your own. And so again, collaboration platforms have a role to play to really bring all of our heads together to make a difference. Yeah, I'm a huge fan, actually, of the Edelman Trust Barometer. And I think when I look back at those results, it is quite startling that for the first time in 20 years, you can see that business is both trusted and seen as competent and particularly being able to deliver against these challenging times. So I think that There is definitely that role for businesses in being part of the solution and they really have to come together with the multi-stakeholder group. What initiatives have you seen from around the world that have really helped us during the pandemic? It's been really fascinating to see how business has responded. The work we did with Jane Nelson, who I mentioned earlier, we looked at how business can use its core business to make a difference 
how it can use its philanthropic donations, and how it can use its policy advocacy, so its voice. And all of those three things are really important. Personally, I think where you can leverage your core business, actually you can have a massive impact and a sustainable impact in ways that you maybe can't through philanthropic giving. I thought, you know, in terms of AB InBev, I thought what's been impressive has been not just the speed of the response, but also the breadth and depth of the response. And I think two things really struck me. One, when the first wave came back in March, I think 2020, when AB InBev converted some of its production facilities so that the alcohol from, as I understand it, non-alcoholic beer was used to make hand sanitizer. Yes. And done in various parts of the world. I thought that was a really innovative and yeah, a pretty impactful way for business to very quickly make a difference. But again, I'm seeing it now with, I think it's in Brazil, where you're converting some of your production into the production of oxygen. And I think these ways in which businesses are thinking well, how can I do most good? And typically the answer is by doing what you do best. And I think IBM Bev has really found the sweet spot in finding things that really make sense and really speak to where your strengths are as a company. So I think that's been really interesting for me. And there's other companies that have done similar things in their own respective fields. I think the other area which is really important is one thing the pandemic has also really highlighted is the systemic issues around gender equity, race, big issues like health system weaknesses, weaknesses in food systems, all these really big, big issues. And I think some of the really interesting coalitions that have, I mean, some of them existed, of course, before the pandemic, and people have been thinking about these issues for many years. But the pandemic has accelerated the importance of really thinking about these big systemic issues. And some of the coalitions that have been created have been very exciting. And I think one particular one I've just taken an example is is the whole issue around vaccine access. And I know ABM Bell has been quite vocal on this as well, but we're part of a group called Business Partners to Convince, which is really a group that is trying to tackle uh, vaccine literacy, access, equity, uptake, and so on. I think that's a really important phase that we all need to go through now in order to be able to rebuild better. And business, I think, can get involved in these much bigger multi-company system level type coalitions to help us move forward. Yeah, and it's great to hear you talk about some of the initiatives that we pivoted at initially around the hand sanitizer. Of course, we had the PPE equipment, face shields, and even extending hospital capacity. I know the work that we've done alongside Unitar on social norms marketing, you know, using our core competence. I think that does play out incredibly well and in terms of the impact that we can have. So can you talk a little bit more about building back better and what that means for you, especially as we look to recover better within our societies? Yeah, I think, you know, the pandemic, but also George Floyd's murder and other things that have happened in the past 12 months or so really have shone a light on some of the really deep inequalities that we must come to terms with as society. And I think tackling those has to be part of rebuilding better. We can't go back to normal in inverted commas. But I think there's two things I'd pick out in addition to that. One is this really important connection, as I mentioned at the beginning, between social impact and environmental impact. And as we frame it as climate justice, so this idea of what are the social dimensions of climate, both in terms of the impacts of climate on particular vulnerable groups of people and communities, but also how can you ensure that those vulnerable groups have access to the opportunities of the transition to a green economy? 
And I think that sort of mix of issues is so important for us to come to terms with and understand how we as a group of businesses can really get involved with. So over and above the scientific imperatives of net zero and so on, how can we make sure that the transition is also a just one? So that's one piece I, I'm sort of keeping a close eye on this year in particular, which we have the COP26 Climate Summit coming up as well, of course. Yeah. But the other thing I think which has really been striking for me is how fast people have been able to come together to collaborate on different issues. You see this in the creation of vaccines, for example, it's the most obvious one. But in many other areas, people have come together to collaborate very fast. And for me, the interesting thing is, well, can we keep going like that at that pace? Can we be that rapid and deal with all sorts of other issues? And in fact, with Harbour Kennedy School, we did a study on a number of these collaborations that happened during the pandemic to try and pull out what was it about them that made them fast. And there are certain things like clear leadership, both for the individual, but also the organization, but also involving communities, young people, digital being agile, having flat structures, now a whole range of different issues. Most important though, and this is, a, I suppose, one of my most important learnings in my 25 or so years of doing this, is the importance of trust. You know, you can do anything and you can do anything fast if you have a fundamental set of trusted relationships on which you can move forward with. And so actually in our work, not only are we trying to drive forward rapid collaboration to problem solve and to access insights, but also the journey of that is as important. How do you build relationships in the pursuit of finding those insights? And so we will always be thinking about who are the right people to bring together to solve a problem? How can we get them to co-create solutions? And I think that this has implications actually beyond even collaboration, the way that companies engage with their stakeholders and with each other. How do we think about the big challenges we face as society? And how can we build authentic conversations and processes for collaboratively problem solving and rebuilding better together? Yeah, that sounds like a fascinating report and study that we should be diving into. And it makes sense that things move faster when you have that inbuilt trust and makes me think a little bit about some of the work we've been doing. And obviously, it's easier to go ahead when you already have those partnerships established. So great that we've been working together for so long and been able to really amplify and equally move quickly during this time. Can you tell us a little bit more about an inclusive recovery? Is there really practical things that we can do as companies? First of all, I think for any business, there is something that you can do. You know, I think sometimes you look at these big issues and say, well, that's too big for me or it's not my thing. I think if a company can look at any issue through the lens of what can I do for my core business, my philanthropy, my voice and advocacy, there'll always be something somewhere in that framework that you can do practically. I mean, I think in terms of the core business side of things, you know, business has such a powerful role to play as a source of innovation, using their reach to achieve scale, using their business models to achieve sustainability. There is so much that you can do as business. And I think, interestingly, if you think about the different actors around the table now compared to, say, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, I think there's a recognition that everyone really has a part to play. You don't have to be an NGO to have a social impact. And in fact, sometimes it's yeah. the platform you bring as a company. I'm just thinking about some of the things that some of your colleagues have talked to me about in the past around your mom and pop shops, you know, the distribution systems that you have across yeah. some very remote regions around the world. 
and how you can use that to get messages out and how you can use that to support broader issues like tackling gender-based violence or women's empowerment. So there's so many things that you have in your toolbox, whether it's your network, your resources, or your products, or your people that you can bring. So there'll always be something that someone can bring to the table. I think in general, though, I'd say if you can align it as closely as possible to what you do best, then you have the biggest chance of having the biggest impact. Yeah, I think especially now, you mentioned the mom and pop shops. And when we think about even just the significance and number of female entrepreneurs and the support that they've been needing during this time and some of the initiatives that we've had and whether being providing the mobile phone and being able to provide those essential goods as well within that community. It also makes me think about actually a report that we launched a few years ago with yourselves and CARE and Stanford, Engaging Men as Allies. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, that was a fascinating piece of work. And in fact, although we did it a little time ago, we've just recently been doing some programs with you and women and others around women's empowerment. And this issue of the role of men has come up time and time again. So I think that report is as relevant now as it was when we wrote it together. I think basically the idea is that if you can engage men as allies, on the one hand, that accelerates progress, but equally, if you don't engage men as allies, that can completely undermine any progress. And there's lots of examples of this around the world. What we did through the report was really to understand, well, what's the role of business in actually what is a massive societal issue when you're dealing with social norms and all these big things like that. And there were really three areas that we sort of focused on in that report. One was what a business can do in the workplace to ensure gender equity, whether it's yeah. around pay or opportunity or anything else. Certain industries, and I dare say um, the beer sector is, is one of these, but there's other sectors that tend to be male-dominated and there's plenty to be done in the context of the workplace. But then beyond that, there's a whole world around in terms of spheres of influence, whether it's in the supply chain, you know, whether it's around diversity initiatives with suppliers, whether it's around supporting women who might be, say, smallholder farmers in the supply chain. But thinking about how you engage men in those conversations as partners in this process. But I think a third area, which I think is really fascinating, I know you've done quite a lot on this, is around marketing and voice. And so in South Africa, I know with the kind of Black Label No Excuse campaign, for example, putting this into the public discourse around this behavior being unacceptable around domestic violence, you know, I think has yeah. been so powerful in shifting the conversation. And if you think more broadly around the influence you can have through your brands, there are so many minds that you can influence and change. And I know that others have learned from that example and are doing it in other contexts. But I think for me, as father of two daughters, in my previous life before business rights property, I led on gender policy in the British government within the Treasury. So I've been very so mindful of what I can maybe do as an ally. I mean, it's very important not to replace the championship of women in these roles and to somehow displace that important where yeah. that happens. But think about how me and other men can be an ally in that process. And maybe the one thing we do, for example, is make sure any platform that we have is at least 50% women. In fact, generally, we, we have 70 to 80% of all of our speakers in any event will be women. And so we want to really bring the voice of women into the conversation. So I think it's, there's plenty that can be done, I think, within business, but also for all of us as individuals. 
Yeah, great to hear the just the real relevance of that report and kind of even more important now than, than ever. You shared, especially based on the results from Edelman and also the study that you've done around this trust element and being something that you've learned recently. But do you have another top leadership tip that you would like to share with us? So I think maybe there's a number of levels to that. I think one thing is for all business leaders listening, you know, there is an expectation of you to stand up on the issues that people care about, whether it's your employees or your customers or anyone else. There is an understanding that you can make a massive difference in a way that makes sense for your core business. And people get that and they recognize that that's probably the best way you can make a difference. But I think beyond that, just in terms of my own personal experience, I think the importance of being agile and flexible and open to collaborate is more important now than ever. I mean, that's almost self-evident now by you know, the experience we've all been through. But the other thing, maybe just to end on a personal note, is the importance of resilience. And I say this not just in terms of thinking about personal resilience, mental health, all the stresses and strains we've all been through, you know, through lockdown, is understanding yeah. how you can support your teams and all those around you at a personal level but also investing in yourself to build your own resilience so that you can make a difference. I mean, for our part, we have a fully flexible workforce and we encourage our teams to really think about how they can combine investing in personal resilience with doing something that's meaningful through their work. So I think the role of the employer, in fact, even the duty of care, you maybe go as far as that, has changed with the pandemic. When people are working at home, there's the boundary between home and work has gone in the sense that it was there before. And I think, therefore, there's a really important role for the employer and you as a business leader to think about what is your duty of care to your workforce more broadly beyond their job description? Because actually, that side of things is not going to go back to how it was. We are going to be much more connected than we have been. And we are going to have to be thinking in a much more holistic way about how we all bring ourselves to the table. Great leadership tips there and uh, really resonates well, especially on the mindfulness. Thank you for joining us today and really a very big thank you for your leadership in Business Fights Poverty and for your partnership over these many years and really looking forward to continuing that partnership and having that thrive even more in the years to come. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Joining me now is Laura Brady, our Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Building Back Better goes hand in hand with an inclusive recovery. And the past year has really shown the need and importance of an inclusive recovery. Can you tell us more about really what's needed? Well, Thank you for the question. And at ABMBev, we know our purpose is to bring people together for a better world. And that's not just for some, that's for everyone. And the pandemic has really exposed and brought to the forefront systemic issues around gender and racial inequality. And the systemic nature of these issues and the setbacks to both gender and racial equality that they've experienced as outcomes of the pandemic mean that society, governments, and businesses have to collaborate going forward in order to recover from these setbacks and drive positive change at scale. Specifically talking about gender equality, the impacts of the pandemic have erased decades of progress. We've seen this in the news. It keeps coming up in studies because women make up most of the jobs that have been hardest hit by the pandemic. And they're also voluntarily dropping out of the workforce at alarming rates because of their unpaid care work that's risen dramatically with stay-at-home orders, 
school and childcare facility closures, and an increased need for elder care. And there's so much research that shows that women's equal participation in governments, businesses, and society is the game changer that we need, which is why it's one of the UN SDGs. It's number five. And I think we all need to focus on getting this SDG back on track together. And the SDGs, a a reminder for folks there, it's the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. But certainly there's a lot more that needs to be done. These were already very ambitious goals for society to achieve. But clearly these setbacks mean a lot more progress has to be made by everyone, including organizations that you've very clearly articulated. So what can organizations really do to recover and advance gender and racial equality? Well, organizations need to look at gender and racial equality, not just within their workforce, but across their value chain in order to truly drive change and collaborate with organizations across sectors. These are systemic issues that will take collaboration to truly change. Yeah. So organizations really need to first identify what they do best as an organization and how their core capabilities can be used to drive change in a way that really builds it into the business model rather than bolting it on as a separate approach, because this is the way that it will be sustainable. So a couple of examples from AB Bev on how we're approaching this is both internally in our supply chain and across our value chain. So internally, we have inclusive programs and policies to support gender equality. We have a global parental leave standard that's gender neutral, as well as a global domestic violence leave standard. But we also hold ourselves accountable on representation by tracking and reporting our metrics publicly, which you can find outlined in our annual report. We've also conducted reviews of pay equity by gender and race in the U.S., and we're expanding that work globally. And within our brand, since this is one of our core capabilities as a company with the reach that we have globally, we've embedded DNI into our marketing and creative processes so that our ads are culturally authentic in the markets that we serve. And we're partnering with organizations like hashtag see her and see all to make sure that we have the right approach to doing this. And then externally in our value chain, our Middle America's team has made a pretty bold commitment to empower 80,000 women-owned small retailers in Colombia, Peru, and Ecuador. And to date, we've empowered over 38,000 of those as part of this commitment. So these are just a couple of examples of how we are approaching this both internally and across our value chain to help illustrate the breadth of what organizations can do to tackle both gender and racial inequality. Those are really powerful examples that you've shared there. And we were hearing earlier just, you know, the high percentage of women, particularly as those small retailers and even in some areas being up as high as 70% being women. So great to hear that coming into effect throughout our supply chain. And I really think the examples around the brands, you know, our brands are really deeply trusted by consumers and ultimately shape culture. So really great to see the brands taking that on as well. So we also heard earlier about the report Men as Allies. Can you go into a little bit more detail on that report for us? Yeah, so this is something that was actually really fun for me to work on. And it was a true collaboration between Business Fights Poverty, Stanford University's Women's Leadership Innovation Lab, and CARE. And, you know, engaging men in gender equality, it's not a new concept. And the UN Women's He for She initiative has actually been around for quite some time. 
And it's been said that engaging men is the most underutilized weapon in the battle for gender equality. And as a beer company with a majority male consumer base, we saw a real opportunity to leverage our capability of speaking to men and really break down the concept into a simple framework that companies and individuals could all use to take action. So we didn't want it to be academic. We wanted it to be really practical and we wanted it to add value to the conversation. So we scanned the research and what was currently out there. And we realized that while there was a lot of research and guidance on how to approach the topic inside an organization, there was a gap in thinking about this topic across the organization's value chain. And so, Yeah. yeah, we created this report to really set out a business case for engaging men in a way that other organizations could use to sell in the concept. And we built a three-part framework that had example case studies from companies who were doing this well to really bring the concept to life. And to gather these case studies, we actually had a roundtable with companies at AB InBev sharing ideas and examples. So it was not just a collaboration with the three organizations writing it, but we had organizations peer-reviewing the report and providing examples. And this report broke it down into three areas. So what can companies do in the workplace, such as trainings, pay equity, policies? The next is what can organizations do within their supply chain, such as growers, farmers, suppliers? And then lastly, what can organizations do through their marketing and voice as a company, which is where we highlighted a case study, which is one of my favorites from a brand called Carling Black Label in South Africa, and their work to help change social norms around gender-based violence through a campaign called No Excuses. And we also wanted to make it pretty clear what men can do as allies personally with some simple steps. So even if you're just part of an organization, not the CEO of an organization, how could you take this report and take action? Because we know that one of the barriers for men to get involved is that they don't you know, feel like they're invited into the conversation and they don't really know how they can contribute and have a role. So I just think this report is a great example of the private sector coming together, partnering with NGOs and academia to put out a really practical piece of research. So I encourage anyone listening to, to check it out. It's on Business Fights Poverty's website. Yeah, that's a a great plug for that report, Laura. And I I have to say, you've shared one of my favorite ads on that campaign, No Excuse from South Africa. Again, a really award-winning campaign and one that I'm sure our listeners will start to check out if they look on YouTube for that as well. So, So what's the next step? Well, I think, you know, we've all been pretty rocked by the pandemic and all of the other things that are happening over the past year. And for us as a company, We're going to continue to look for opportunities to leverage our core capabilities to help build back better across other areas of our value chain. So things like working with procurement, sales, and even some of our new venture arms. And we have to continue to connect with organizations to collaborate and share innovative approaches. The things that we're tackling now, we cannot tackle alone, or we're just going to be chipping away at things. So the systemic nature means that we have to keep coming together. So we currently participate in a number of collaboration forums. Uh, One of them that I'm on is the Business Fights Poverty Gender-Based Violence Working Group. And it's a really great collection of companies coming together, sharing knowledge about our policies and programs for the impacts of domestic violence in the workplace. And then we're also a member of CARES Corporate Council, which has released a gender toolkit that I also encourage you all to check out. And those are just a couple of examples of how we continue to to work cross-sectors. And it's not just up to organizations and it's really that we all have a role. So what are some of the practical things that we can all do? 
So I get asked this question a lot and I usually share four tips for how you can start making an impact with diversity, equity, and inclusion, regardless of who you are, or what you do. And the first is really to start the work with yourself. So understand your own biases and your triggers because we all have them. We're human and understand what are those things that really get in the way for you to see people and opportunities for who and what they really are. And then second is once you've kind of had that self-reflection is to focus on building relationships with others across differences. We are very comfortable and able to connect with people where we have common affinities, but we need to get comfortable embracing differences But how do you do that? It's not so hard, but you have to really start by building connections with people where you have similarities. Find those things that you have in common. And then once you do, it's much easier to navigate the areas where you're different. And then the third thing is once you get your sea legs, when you see inequities and bias, call them out. Individual silence and inaction are what keep inequality alive. And it's our role as we're all on this journey to spot bias and speak up when we see it. Absolutely. And then lastly, if organizations are truly going to expand this concept across their value chains and move it beyond the HR function is to really think about how DNI can be integrated in the scope of your work. No matter what your function, your organization, there are always possibilities to think about ways to drive more diversity, equity, and inclusion. So those are my four tips. These are great tips, Laura. And as you say, not not just great tips for leaders, colleagues, but even as friends and indeed parents, of course, we've really got to take our role very, very seriously in order to be able to drive change. Now, finally, as we close this discussion, I'd love to hear what is your leadership tip, especially something that you've found you've had to lean on this past year? Yes. So... This has been a transformational year for me, like many others, in many ways. And I think when I reflect on this question, it's about the importance of being human, bringing your full self, and creating a psychologically safe environment so that your team members can feel safe doing the same. And before the pandemic, I think it was pretty easy to separate your work and personal life if you chose to. And some people like doing that more than others. But now many of us have had to adapt our homes being our office and our lives are just happening right behind us while we're sitting on Zoom. So you don't really have a choice in most cases. And I personally had a baby during the pandemic and opening up to my team about what it's like returning to work in a totally different context and sharing the realities of what it's like to have a child at home when their childcare closes due to a COVID outbreak has definitely made us stronger as a team. And we're all practicing more empathy for each other's situations and giving people space when they need and speaking up when we need that space ourselves. And so leading by example has really been a good lesson for me. And then having that level of psychological safety in the team and creating it so that people can be vulnerable and ask for help has been what's key to getting us through the pandemic so far. Oh, Laura, thank you for sharing. Congratulations again on being a new mother. As you know, I also expanded the family recently, so it'd be great for us to compare notes when we're back in the office. Thank you very much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been great fun. You've been listening to Talking on Tap, a podcast series from AB InBev. I'm your host, Elaine McCrimmon, and we've been talking to David Almeida, our Chief Strategy and Technology Officer, and Zahid Torres-Rahman, the Founder and Chief Executive Officer for Business Fights Poverty. 
and Laura Brady, our Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ab-inbev.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you've enjoyed this series, then please subscribe, rate, and review us. And if you think others will enjoy it too, please share with your family, friends, and colleagues. Thanks for joining us. We are AB InBev. This is Margot Miller from the AB InBev legal team. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by AB InBev solely for informational purposes and is general in nature. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed or provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not officers, employees, or agents of AB InBev, are not necessarily those of AB InBev and may not be current. AB InBev does not make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the content contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, is expressly disclaimed. Certain of the statements may have been forward-looking in nature and based on the current expectations and views of future events and developments of the speakers and are naturally subject to uncertainty and changes in circumstances. AB InBev does not undertake any obligation to provide any form of update, amendment, change, or correction to any of the information, statements, comments, views, or opinions set forth in this podcast.